Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I'm talking about the text in Jeremiah 10.23 as something of a key to the biblical view of the nature of man. I know, O Lord, that man's way is not in himself. It is not in man who walked to direct his steps. We commented on the fact that in the Hebrew, two different words are used for man. In the first line, I know, O Lord, that Adam's way, saying that that word has nothing, there's no sex in it. It is uh, the generic term for the human race, any person in the human race. I know, O Lord, that mankind, his way, is not in himself. It is not in, and the second word for man is used there, Hebrew word ish, it is the word for the individual. It is not in the individual who walks to direct his steps. We said that the expression who walks is a Semiticism for a goal-oriented creature, and that the nature of being a person is that he has goals. There are things he wants to achieve. He has desires. And they're more than just simply uh, the desires for the immediate fulfillment of the physical demands of one's person. They are spiritual desires and personal desires. We're goal-oriented creatures. And so the prophet spoke and said, I know that mankind's way is not in himself. It is not in the individual, the goal-oriented person, to direct his steps. That the nature of being a person is that for him to get anywhere, he has to have an external frame of reference. There has to be a beyond in his life for him to be what his inner being says he ought to be. And if that beyond is not there, then there is a dimension of his living, a dimension in his living that will never be realized, that will never be fulfilled. I've come, as I indicated to you yesterday, to believe that that is sort of spelling out for us in a graphic way what is the biblical picture of a human being, the biblical picture of a human person, that we are uh, not self-contained units. We are made for something, for someone beyond ourselves. And we said there were four things about us that we're not self-originating, and uh, it's like it, it's, it should not be necessary for us to uh, labor that point. But it is a key one. We are not self-originating. We are not self-sustaining. Our life is not contained within ourselves. We are not self-fulfilling. If we're going to be fulfilled, there is a beyond that has to be in our life and an other that has to be in our life for us to be fulfilled. Uh, we're not even self-explanatory. There is something about the nature of a person that demands something beyond him to explain him. Uh, as we said, wherever you bump into a person, you know he had a mother and a father. He can deny it, and uh, he may not even know he had a mother and father. may never have known them, but they were there. We are not self-explanatory creatures. Now, we said that... Uh, 
what is being said biblically is that man is not God. And that is a rather obvious thing, but it's something we are perpetually forgetting. And it is, there is a line drawn biblically between God and the creature that is perhaps the most, the most important truth given anywhere in scripture, because everything else is dependent upon it. Now, I lived a long time before I understood that, <clears throat> or before I accepted it. But I'm convinced if you do not recognize the line between the creator and the creature and establish it firmly, your thinking is going to be fuzzed up everywhere else and you're going to end up in illusion and delusion because this is the rudimentary differentiation in life between God and his creatures, between the creator and the creatures. Now, uh, one of the things that, uh, and when, once you draw that line, once you draw that line and establish that difference, then it makes sense. And it is not an insult to me to say that I'm not self-contained and not self-fulfilling and that I am not self-explanatory and uh, all of these things. It is not an insult to me then. It is simply saying you're a creature of God. And if he's the great God that we think he is, you're an incredible person. It is not a diminution of your being. There is a sense in which you see his greatness. It is an exaltation of your personhood that you are a creature and, uh, of, of course, you're not divine. Now, uh, that's a crucial line that has to be drawn. One of the things that I have, uh, and, and if you draw that, then you understand why there should be another in your life. Because we're made for another. In the same way, the male is made to relate to the female, and the female is made to relate to the male. Man, the creature, is made to relate to God. And so, built into our life is the evidence that we're made to relate to God. It's on every hand. It's everywhere in our personhood and in our being. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, uh, that Jeremiah, I think, is thinking, and that the Scripture labors all the way through. Now, I began, I came a long time ago to where I uh, began to work on a, a principle that I called the law of the second witness. Uh, that is, that any biblical truth, if you look long enough, will be confirmed by a non-biblical source. Uh, at least will be witnessed to by a non-biblical source. If God revealed himself in the word then the creation that he made out here, if he made that and he gave to us his word, then these two have a compatibility about them. Now, uh, therefore, if a person knows the scripture and knows it well and knows life, he will find the two confirmatory of each other. Now, so oftentimes in our day, we find people who feel that scripture and the world about them are contradictory. And uh, I've been interested in this whole creation-evolution conflict, and I'm convinced that a substantial chunk of the argument's been on totally alien basis. But uh, the ridiculous thing to me is that there never would have been modern science if it hadn't been for Genesis 1 and 2. And that can be historically pretty well documented. So that the people who fight creationism are children of Genesis 1 and 2 in, in the history 
historical development of human thought and human culture. Now, in the Old Testament, it may be that this came into focus for me in this way because of I taught Old Testament for a while. You know, in the Old Testament, there, you could not kill a man on the basis of one person's testimony. If I were to see, personally, John Thrasher uh, shoot Al McGee and kill him, uh, and go to the judge and say, I was there, I saw him do it. They couldn't touch John Thrasher. Because in the Old Testament, nobody could be uh, judged on the basis of one witness. There had to be two witnesses. Because one witness can always be deceived and can always have an ulterior motive in what he's about. And so there was that careful work in the Old Testament to protect a man from that kind of thing. Now, uh, so that's, with that as the background, I suppose that may be the way I have tended, why I have tended to formulate it this way, the law of the second witness. That if this scripture is the word of God, and if this creation is God's creation, then there will be, then this will be illustrated here, and this will fit here. Now, uh, I've been kicking around uh, some of these thoughts that I've been sharing with you. And not too long ago, there fell into my hand some books that were um, uh, between 20 and 30 years old that I had never seen. The Gifford Lectures for 1953 and 1954. Now, you know enough to know that the Gifford ship is one of the most esteemed uh, intellectual ventures in the Western world. Uh, only the most elite get invited to give the Gifford Lectures. There are a few Americans who have been invited, like Rhino Niebuhr and some of these guys, and Paul Tillich. But in 1953-54, the Gifford Lectures were given by a British philosopher, I think he was a Scot, by the name of John McMurray. And uh, I was fascinated because the Gifford Lectures are written on the assumption that you will not draw from Scripture to support what you're arguing. It is, uh, uh, it, it, the Gifford Lectures originally were set up apparently on the principle of what I have come to formulate for myself as the law of the second witness. And so what it is, is an attempt to look at life without any of the light of revelation and see if there is anything supportive there of uh, Christian truth. And so uh, I, wherever I have seen these and had the opportunity, uh, I've been interested in them from that point of view. So the two volumes in McMurray's series, one is called Self as Agent, and the other is called Persons in Relation. Now here is a top-flight scholar, a top-flight philosopher, speaking simply as a philosopher, not as a theologian, and certainly not as a biblical scholar. There's not a biblical reference in either volume. Uh, it, he is speaking, and he says in the beginning, I speak simply as a philosopher from within my discipline and uh, with the resources that are available within my discipline to address the subject. Now, he is, uh, uh, the thing that enamored me was this. He says, I have become convinced that uh, the basic model in Western thought in dealing with people is wrong. 
and that the basic model that we use in the natural sciences and in, but even more in the social sciences is wrong. He says, because uh, we have come under the influence of the philosophical system that began for us back in the 16th century with men like Descartes, and he uses Descartes as the sort of focal point from which it came, and he says it has influenced all of Western thought since. Descartes, you will remember, was the French Roman Catholic who uh, wanted to find a position of certainty from which he could start. It was a mood in his day of, of doubting and questioning all knowledge. So what he wanted to know was, was there some established certainty from which he could begin and then build other certainties? So he questioned everything. And finally he said, ah, there's my key. If I question everything, then uh, there's the place to start. Because the person who does all the questioning is the starting point. So you will remember his famous dictum, if you ever had any philosophy, and you probably heard it if you haven't had any philosophy, uh, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. He said, I can doubt everything except the fact that I'm a doubter. If I doubt everything, then the one thing I can't doubt is the fact that I'm doubting. So he started out and said, there is my point of certainty, and that was his proposition. I think, therefore I am. And beginning with his own existence, and beginning with his own existence as a rational being, as a thinking creature, he worked, to do, did a volume called Discourse on Method, and his interest in method was a way of moving from that point of certainty to other certainties, to the existence of God, to the nature of God, and these things. Now, McMurray says that that is basic to all of Western thought sense, and everybody has come under that unwittingly, wittingly or unwittingly. Now, he says there are two things wrong with that. One of them is, he says, it's egocentric. It begins with I. And he says, two, it's theoretical. It is man detached from life and man observing. Peter, I think you were talking some about this yesterday. And he says, that is an illusory stance. And it is not a, a place for us to begin. One, he says, when you start with yourself, you're, start, you're starting with, uh, you are not starting with a primal, original entity. Because he says, there's no way you can have a self by itself. So he says, the purpose of my first series of lectures is to, is to affirm or propose that you can't have one person without two. And so, uh, Descartes was wrong when he started with man in isolation. Because he says, when you get a person in isolation, you've got something less than a person. That true personhood never develops except in relation to others. 
And he goes ahead and philosophically develops it. Now, I'm not going to take the time uh, here to, to try to work through all of his arguments. But it's a, it is a magnificent intellectual presentation of that basic, what I feel is a rudimentary truth. He says you cannot have a person without an other. Now, let me illustrate uh, just sort of a bit of his argument. He says that uh, the essence of being a person is that he has freedom of choice, that he can affect his future, that he can make decisions that determine his future. Now, he says the interesting thing is there is no such thing as freedom of choice if there is no other. And his his best illustration, or the one that comes on to me, most dramatic, is he says, a man in free fall can't make a choice. He can think. He can think like Descartes, but he can't make a choice. He says, a man in free fall cannot affect his future. Now, he says, you have to differentiate between movement and action. He said, man can move in free fall, but he can't act because he defines an act as affecting your future. He says, you've got to have something to act against in order to act. In fact, you can't walk if you're suspended. (laughs) There has to be an other in order for you to act. It's interesting, before he gets through with the first volume, he's beginning to capitalize the word other. (laughs) Now, never a reference to God, (laughs) but before he gets through, he capitalizes other. That man in isolation is not a full man. He has powers he can never exercise. He has potentials he can never develop. He has gifts that can never be used. He can never be what he was intended to be in isolation. Now, he says, uh, at that point, uh, Descartes was wrong. Uh, Because you don't have an adequate starting point when you start with the I in isolation. He said, in fact, you have difficulty at defining the I in isolation. He said, you find out who you are by relating. If you were a male and you'd never seen a female, you wouldn't know what a male was. You wouldn't have a word male. If you were a female and you'd never seen a male, you wouldn't know what a female was. We know by contrast and analogy. So you have to have other in order to know yourself. Now, now he's not a theologian. He is strictly a philosopher. He says, now, the second thing is that uh, you not only need another in order to be a person, you need, uh, uh, Descartes was wrong in that his position is theoretical. Egocentric first, secondly, theoretical. Man in isolation, thinking. But more than man in isolation, man in detachment thinking. 
So that he says, what you have is a man who seeks knowledge for knowledge's sake. And he said, knowledge, when it is knowledge for knowledge's sake, ceases to be true knowledge. There is no way to know whether it is imagination, something self-delusion, when it is man in detachment thinking. The only way you can know that your thinking is authentic is when it is being worked out in life. Now, as an Old Testament uh, student, that made a great deal of appeal to me. Because, you know, the New Testament differentiation between faith and works, boy, you don't find that in the Old Testament. It isn't there because there is a holistic way of thinking in the Old Testament. Now, the Greeks and the people in Paul's world could differentiate thinking from, from living, thinking from acting. But in the Old Testament, if you believe it, you act on the idea that uh, uh, Abraham. You you go through the book of Genesis and you'll find almost no propositional statements about God. There's no such thing as systematic theology in the book of Genesis in in the format of systematic theology. There is nothing in the book of Genesis like the book of Romans. What do you have? Abraham believed God and left his home and his job and his acquaintances, and his securities, and his identity, and all of that. He believed God, and God said, come with me. And if he believed him, he had no option. Belief and action were inseparable in the Old Testament. And to trust was a, was a personal relationship. It's a very intimate relationship. It's interesting that the word amen, you see, comes from the Hebrew root meaning to, uh, to believe. And so when you come to the conclusion, you say amen, what you're saying is, I believe it. We translate that, so be it, which means let it be worked out. I was fascinated when I found that, now think of the consonants now instead of the vowels, because the difference between uh, nouns uh, the basic ideas are reflected in consonants. The vowels give you the different, uh, with your language background, you know that. Whose law was that? Uh, Grimes' law? That the consonants don't change, it's the vowels that change. Like you have uh, pater, father, fater. Uh, you can keep on padre. And P's and F's and D's in, in European languages are basically the same. you got that D and the R, the T and the R. They're all there. It's one basic root. The consonants stick. The vowels change. All right. An amen, amen means for it to be established, for it to be believed. And an omenit is a nurse. Now, what is uh, the supreme example of, of, uh, of trusting? It's the baby at his mother's breast, in which one is drawing life from the other, and the one is yielded totally in the possession of the other. Now, there's some very, very, very personal things like that in, in the Old Testament. You do not separate. Faith is not uh, just a proposition. I don't want to oppose propositional truth. It is essential for thinking. But if it stays at the propositional level, the intellectual level is not biblical faith. 
Now he says, Descartes took the Greek concept of man in isolation from life, thinking, the theoretician. And the end result is he can think and think and think, and that's the reason that so oftentimes scholars are so far from reality. <laughs> and that's the reason that uh, colleges in the United States always have un non-educators running them. Every private college in the United States has non-educators running. Now, why? And the, and, the, and the PhDs on the faculty always kick it. They say, if we just had some educators on the board, they'd understand. It's exactly right. They'd understand about the educators. But you see, laymen have the notion a college is supposed to get you ready for life. Not for thinking in detachment, but for living. Now, now, educators have the notion that thinking and living ought to go together. And so, he said, uh, 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 McMurray said, Descartes dealt with man detached thinking. Watch him. Observe. In the gal. And you know how easy it is to know the answers when you don't have to do it? Now, Kentucky understands that very well after the last basketball season. You know, all the people that second-guessed Joe Hall? Sitting in the stands, it's very easy to win NCAA championships. But when you've got to get out there and put your team together and do it, that's another matter. Now, those people that crit critique your sermons on Sunday morning, when I was at Asbury with required chapel three times a week, the kids sometimes would complain about what poor speakers we had in chapel. And if they were, I always liked to take them on in a group when they did that. Because when I had them in a group, I knew that some of them in the crowd were going to be preachers. And so uh, when they'd start that, I'd say to them, now let me ask you a question. Any of you guys going to be preachers? And there always some of them say yes. And I'd say, now I want to ask you. Do you think every time you ever stand up, you're going to have something exciting and dramatic to say? I say, you know, one of the reasons you ought to go to chapel and enjoy especially days when they're poor preachers. <laughs> is because then you'll have a little more understanding of what your people are going to have to go through some Sundays when you stand up to preach. It's very easy to sit back and tell people how to criticize the other person and say how he should have done it. McMurray says, truth that doesn't interlock with life is not truth yet. And he says, so modern thought has dealt with the theoretical and backed off from involvement. Now notice there that you're still dealing with another, aren't you? And you're dealing with interfacing. You're dealing with interaction, interpenetration. The self is, is not the true self in isolation, and the self is not protected from delusion when he is, and from illusion when he is in detachment. The only way that you are protected, that you can reach your full development, and that you can be protected from error, is in relationship to other people. I don't think it's any, I don't think. That really needs to be labored once you think about it. Uh, how do you advance truth best? Not sitting off in an ivory tower. You usually do it best in dialogue, don't you? 
I don't know about you, but if I get a new idea, first thing I want to do is find somebody I can air it with and spell it out and then have him look at me and say, Come on, you're crazy as a loon. And then he argues with me and I say, For heaven's sake, you know, he's about half right. <laughs> and then having realized he's half right, that may necessitate some corrections. And then I find somebody else and air my correction as if I thought of it all just that way the first time, see? And he said, wait a minute, Ken Law, you're, you're 30% wrong. And I back off and think it and say, yeah, he's probably right. And so we work it out this way. How does it, how does it come? It comes in dialogue and interaction. There's a way we find truth. And when we apply it to life. And you know, from, from that point of view, there are a lot of us who know too much. From the theoretical point of view. Because, and that's the problem with seminaries. You get it stacked in you. You get all the answers before you've ever dealt with the problems. Now, McMurray says that that is typical, that detachment, theoretical character. That's, that, that's typical of modern thought. Isolate man alone and detach. Now, uh, he goes on to say that the end result is that we live in a period when the crisis of our day is the crisis of what is a person and how does he relate. And he says we've got a wrong view of what a person is because we've got a wrong view of what a person is, all personal relationships. So many of our personal relationships get fouled up. We begin with man as an individual, and that's not what he is. Man originally starts out as a person in relation. Uh, the person who has just made his entrance into this life is a better picture of what personhood is than the multimillionaire at the end of his life who can, who can buy his way through everything around because what he has done is build distance between himself and others. And the person at his entry in his life is in the middle of a womb of personal relationships. And that is more truly a person than that dehumanized creature at the end who's got everything under control. Now, uh, that takes me back to what I was saying yesterday, that the essence of human life and of personhood is giving and receiving. Except we ought to turn that around. First, receiving. And then, giving. Now, uh, in connection with this, uh, McMurray says we need a new model. We need somebody who can come along and step outside of modern thought and give us a new perspective and a new beginning. Now, he says that's very difficult because the man you're asking to do is a modern man. And so you're asking the man's side of his skin, sort of, and look at us. But uh, let me short-circuit some things. That's the reason I believe God gave to us the Scriptures. Because we have a perspective that can critique us. God does not want me to be something other than a modern man. If he did, he'd have me born some other time. 
So I'm supposed to think in these categories, but I'm not supposed to be captive to them. I'm supposed to think in these categories. If I don't think in these categories, I can't communicate with my world around me. But he's given me a transcendent word to help me critique this. And the funny thing is that if I look at this in its aberrations with this light, I can see the witness in the aberrations to this. This may be afferent, but there is within it the confirmation that this is right, if I look at it right. Now, we need a new model for what a person is. Where are we going to get a model? Modern thought has taken the individual in isolation and detachment as the model. I think Sowai is uh, out at Kent in uh, uh, social work, doing graduate work in social work. We were talking a few minutes this morning, and uh, be very interested in her comments uh, along this line when we get a chance for some dialogue, discussion. I'm sorry David Stewart isn't here. Uh, uh, I'm convinced that in the social sciences today, we have that kind of Descartian model unwittingly, or a child of the Descartian model, or a grandchild. And what we set up as the ideal person is a person in isolation. And that's what an individual is. So we deal with an individualism that is unrealistic. Now, uh, what is the model that we should work from? Not the person who is self-contained, mature, got everything under control, manages his own life, adequate for any situation, can make it on his own. The social worker comes in and plays a god, has all the answers. I hate people who have all the answers. Because I don't have them all. And it's interesting how I don't mind receiving from somebody who has to receive from me. And somebody who comes at my level, I can receive from. I can receive correction, criticism from somebody who isn't perfect. But it's not too easy to receive from the person who's always right. Now, uh, We've used the model of that self-sufficient person, you see. Now, where is the model that we should go to? I think the model, here's the place where I'm convinced that good theology helps us, helps us live. I think good theology helps us in our marriage, helps us in our family, helps us in our business relationships, helps us in our churches, helps us. If we understood, if we were better theologians, living would be more, more comfortable. Uh, now, where is the model to which we turn? I'm convinced the model for us is in the nature of God. Now, that shouldn't be too, too shocking, because the scripture said we were made in his image. So, if we're made in his image, then if we look at him, if there's any fuzz in what we look like, when we look at ourselves, if we look at him, we'll get a corrector on that uh, fuzz when we look at ourselves. So that's basically biblical enough. Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 5, and then when you come to the New Testament, the atonement of Christ is to renew us in the image of the one that created us. Renewed in the image of Christ. 
We're to be brought back to that image. We're told we were made in his image. The image got, got marred, defaced. And now Christ has come and he's going to bring us back to that image. Now, what is the image of God? I read the theologians as much as I could, and I don't want you to think I'm any systematic theologian. But I've tried to read the Barks and the Bruners and the Tillichs and the Niebuhrs and these guys. Uh, and you know where they tend to go when they talk about the image of God? They talk about the image of God in rational terms. Man's reason. I don't want to play down reason. Priceless gift. I don't think there's any question but that we're like God in that. The animal does not is is below us is different from us. He is not able to think the way we think. There may be some rudimentary similarities in his brain operations to ours. But our ability to second-guess ourselves, our ability to make moral distinctions, our ability for self-transcendence, uh, uh, our ability for logical thought, propositional thought, all these things is different. Now, I think that's because we're like God. But the, but the significant thing to me is that the Scripture never discusses that. If it does, I don't know where it is. Now, there may be somewhere in Paul where that's, it, it, if it's not explicitly stated, it's implicitly stated and really ought to be. But let me take, remind you of what the Genesis story says. God said, let us make Adam after our own image. After our own life. Let us make man after our own likeness. Now, notice something carefully. Let us is plural. Make Adam, that's singular, after our own, and the our is plural. Male and female created he them. And the male is singular and the female is singular, but the them is plural and the them is the Adam. And the image is the divine us. Now you look at 126 in Genesis, you look at the beginning of the, uh, is it the fifth chapter of Genesis, and you'll find it stated again. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them. Now notice the play between singular and plural. When God created Adam, he made him singular in the likeness of God. He created them, plural, male and female. At the time they were created, he blessed them and called them Adam. Now, uh, let, me, let me labor the point of that intermixture of singulars and plurals. And the idea of a single individual made as an example of God never occurs in Scripture. Now, why? I'm convinced the reason is that the model is not made up 
of the isolated, singular individual. What is it? It's what we as Christians call the Trinity. And now, let me, let me get to the crux of what I want to say, and this may shock you. And I get a little uneasy saying it, because <laughs> I don't want to be a heretic. And I, I haven't thought my way all the way through on all this. And you know, you can say something that's truth, but people can hear it. And what they hear is not absolutely correct. Uh, because language is never exact. Language always has to be contextualized for you to know what's being said. So keep my look for my context, but let me say the sentence first to get it out there. Uh, I don't find anything in the scripture to indicate that God is a person. Now, that may not be shocking to you, but when I majored in philosophy in college, I was indoctrinated in Gordon Parker Bound, Edgar Sheffield, Brightman personalism, which Ben will understand. <laughs> uh, and that was the great thing, you know. God is person. Now, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to uh, criticize that too much. But that was sort of the basic assumption. God is a person. Now, your better philosophers may not have said it that way, but that's the way we understood it. But classical, historic, orthodox theology says, and I'm not talking about 20th century orthodoxy or even 16th century orthodoxy. I'm talking about historic Christian theology in our creeds and confessions say that God is three persons. He's one being in three persons. All right. Now, if that's so, then the very nature of personhood is to be incomplete, isn't it? And any concept of personhood that deals with a person in isolation is unrealistic. That if you had a perfect person, he'd still be incomplete. You say anything is perfect can stand on its own feet, can it? It depends on what your definition is. A perfect crutch, can it stand by itself? Uh, or, you know, if it's perfect, if a thing is a perfect one thing, it can't be something else. If a circle is perfect, is it also a square? If it's a perfect circle, it can't be a square. By logical definition. So if you have a perfect man, he's not God. And if you have a perfect person, in this sense, he's not, he's not, he's not complete in himself. Now you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the Father? Yeah, that's right. I get hung up at that point. But I notice that we are not made in the image of the first person of the Blessed Trinity. We're made in the image of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Now, let me remind you of a few of the things that Jesus said. I dare you to sit down and read through the Gospel of John and read the discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of John carefully with this in mind. He says things as blunt as, in myself I can do nothing. 
Very self-sufficient, isn't it? Self-contained. Adequate for anything. He says, by myself, I can do nothing. In fact, he says something else. He says of himself, my father has life in himself. Which means my father is self-originating and self-sustaining. He says, my father has given to me to have life in myself. So that the life of the second person of the Blessed Trinity is a given life. Now hold on. The classic creeds say that he is the eternally begotten son. Now he's the son. You can't have a son without a father, can you? And where does a son get his life? The son gets his life. Now father in that sense has no, no gender in it. There's no sex in it. It is like Adam in, in, in Genesis. It's inclusive of both. At least that's the way I understand it. Now, he draws his life from his parents. So that what is said in the classical creeds is that he is the eternally begotten son. The same way the infant before the placenta is cut draws his life from his mother, the second person of the Trinity is eternally drawing his life from the first person of the Trinity. Now that's not independence. Now if the supreme model for me finds his life drawn out of somebody else, and life for him is a given, then it shouldn't be an insult to me to find out that life for me is not something I've got under control. It's something that is drawn from the one who gives his life to me. Not only gave his life, but gives his life. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic, and I don't believe that the sacrifice is repeated every time the Mass is said, but I think he's perpetually giving his life to me. Or wants to give his life to me. All right. Uh, the second person of the Trinity is eternally drawing his life from the first one. Now that's done something to my view of uh, human birth. You see, we live in time. So that all of our life is characterized by points, punctiliar, seconds, moments. There's no such thing as living an hour at a time, is there? You can't live an hour at a time. You can't even live a minute at a time. You live at that punctiliar moment, that thin line that we call the present. And there's where we live, and it is eternally, forever becoming the past. And the other keeps rushing in. At least that's the way we visualize it. Now, he's not caught in that. Now, that child's birth... The infant's entry into the world is a temporal expression in a moment of what takes eternal, takes place eternally between the second person of the Trinity and the first person of the Trinity. I want to ask you a question. Is that one of the reasons that everybody is awed by birth? I notice that even the atheist 
when he watches his wife deliver and sees that little life emerge, gets mushy. You remember old Whitaker Chambers? Somebody said to him, what was it that started you toward God? He said, the convolutions in the ear of my little girl. He said, I was holding her in my lap one day, and I looked down at her ear, and I said, accident? That is a little difficult. And he said, my pilgrimage to God started with the convolutions in my daughter's ear. <laughs> but, now why? There is something I think. Now maybe, maybe you see I'm bringing Christian. Uh, maybe I'm bringing to this something that is not there. But I suspect that anywhere you find a normal human a normal atheist, let me put it that way. A good atheist. <laughs> and I'm not about to say that you can't use that language together on occasion. An honest one, you know. There's something awesome at it. Let me ask you. Is that because of the fact we're seeing a punctiliar analog to what eternally takes place in the nature of the deity? Okay. Now, uh, you remember that the classical creeds say about the third person of the Trinity that he proceeds from the first two. Now, there is why you can have written in the scripture that God is love, and you will not find that said in any of the other religious literatures of the world. Love is something gods do in other religions. But it is never something that gods are. Because you see, in the beginning, in, before the creation, in eternity, when there was nothing but God, you have to have two people to have love, don't you? Which raises a question for me about self-love. Is love something that has to do with, you see, relationship this way? with an other. Now, <laughs> I was fascinated that old McMurray, the, the, the philosopher, said, now what's the purpose of philosophy? I stopped. I couldn't believe my eyes. He says in the introduction to his second volume on persons in relation, he says the purpose of philosophy is for friendship. One of the major philosophers of the middle of the 20th century. Purpose of his first volume, that you can't have one person alone. you got to have another. And the purpose of the second volume is as to how they relate to each other. For friendship. You see, truth, to enable me to relate to you more perfectly. Now, I'm sure there's some systematic theologians whose hair would be on their neck would be standing straight up, that, that kind of thing. And I don't want to despise uh, the propositional, logical development that you get in systematic theology. I mean, I think these two things go together if we see them rightly. Because I think what is being, what we're getting is an expression 
of Chalcedonian theology. <laughs> From the early church, uh, the creedal statements spelled out in propositional form being expressed as an indication that that is, uh, uh, life fits it. Life fits it. And it fits the biblical pattern. Now, uh, what I'm interested in is what that does to us in relation to living if this view is right and if it's biblical. I think we are made for love. And I think we are made to live within it. With this, I'll quit for this session. I was interested in this study done recently at Johns Hopkins. And let me uh, call in again the law of the second reference. Study done at Johns Hopkins on uh, the lifespan of men who marry as opposed to the lifespan of men who don't marry. How many of you saw this reported? The lifespan of men who marry and their wives die before they die, as opposed to the lifespan of men who marry and their wives outlive them. The lifespan of women whose husbands die before they do, as opposed to the lifespan of men whose wives die before them. Uh, the lifespan of those whose partners die and they don't remarry, as opposed to those who do remarry. And a whole group of things like this. You remember where the conclusions were? Any insurance company is willing to pay a man money to get him to marry. Because it'll be a whale of a lot longer before they have to pay, under normal circumstances, the death benefits if he gets married. Now, anybody knows that can't be true. Think of all the tensions and problems that happen when you get married. Stress, if stress is a deadly factor, you know jolly well that married men are going to die early. I think about some of the stresses in my life. I remember when we had three kids in college and one in medical school. I remember when my son walked in and looked at me and said, Dad, I'm sick. I said, what's the prognosis? He said, it isn't good. I knew I was looking at the only son we had. And he was going down. He was 28 years of age. Had a wife and two children. You think of some of the stressful moments in your life that you never would have had if you had never married. Think how free you could have been if you had never gotten married. We got five kids. You know jolly well the stress that all that creates ought to take some of life. But the realities are a man lives much longer if he's married and if he's got a family than if he doesn't. There must be some payoff in it somewhere. Okay. Now, I was interested that the men whose wives die, unless they remarry, they die very quickly. A man's life doesn't work much after his wife died. I was fascinated by the fact that a woman's lifespan is not affected by whether her husband dies or not. 
So it's obvious women are the stronger sex. <laughs> They're the more self-contained, apparently. And can handle it better. I was intrigued by the fact that the man whose wife dies and he remarries lives longer than the guy whose wife doesn't die. <laughs> now, I didn't like that. But I think well, I remember an experience I had. I was pastoring when I was in seminary. I got acquainted with a man who took a great interest in student pastors, a very fine fellow. And his wife became seriously ill, and he nursed her. He finally dropped out of the ministry, retired, because she was so sick. She had to have somebody to care for her, so he lovingly cared for her. And as she died, I watched him deteriorate. And he did. He deteriorated. About three years later, I had gone on somewhere else, and I came back to the annual conference where I'd had a student pastor, and I saw him. He had on a bright blue suit, white shirt, necktie, cleanly shaved, haircut just right, trim as could be, and I turned to him, and I said, Man, you look great. He said, Let me introduce you to my new wife. <laughs> There's something about love that's life-giving. You know, I'd love to see a study, and it ought to be true, of Christians, men, who have long married lives, and they outlive their wives. Non-Christian men whose wives die and they remarry, and that the Christian marriages were so happy and so rich that the Christian married man would live longer than the non-Christian man who remarried. That would be an authentic witness to Christianity, wouldn't But the realities are, I think, that we are conditioned to live in love. I want to ask you, is that because we're made in the image of the one who is the second person of the Trinity? Whose context eternal is love. Where the father looks at him and says, this is my son, I'm well pleased in him. The son looks back at us and says, and anything he wants, that's what I do. That's my life and that's my fulfillment. I came not to do my own will, to do the will of the one that sent me. Is that the pattern for the social sciences? It's a little different, isn't it? 